Today on All Business, we have an internationally known leader in a very serious business. Growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, he went on to become a cadet at West Point, where he would graduate first in his class, setting the stage for an illustrious military career that would earn him four stars as NATO's supreme allied commander in Europe. He's a best-selling author of four books, a successful business leader, a well-known news commentator, a one-time presidential candidate, and I hope he will run again. And he joins us here today, General Wesley K. Clark. He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, General, the first thing I've got to say, and I'm going to call you General because that's how I grew up, was respecting the rank. My father was a senior master sergeant in the United States Air Force, served his entire life and career in the Air Force, and then got out and then spent some years in retirement. But I got to thank you for all you've done to serve our country. And I just wanted to say that first. Well, thank you very much. It's been it's been a privilege, a real privilege to serve in uniform. It's just a it's just a great thing for young people to do, and some of us were fortunate enough to stay in it for a long time. You know, I, that's one of the things I regret is the fact that I never did that uh, personally. You know, my father, as I said, was mentioned, was a sergeant. I grew up on an Air Force base, uh, you know, for most of my uh, younger life, uh, not after my adult life, of course, but once I graduated from high school. But I always regret that. And let me ask you something. You know, my dad served three tours in Nam, and back then was a different world and today there seems to be a greater respect for the military than ever before would you would you agree with that i would agree with it and um on the one hand it's very comforting and on the other it, it, it's worrisome why do you, you say know that? why do you say it's worrisome? we had a we have a great military today and the people that are there they're all volunteers now the truth jeff is that the Air Force was always all volunteers. People joined the Air Force, not talking about your father, but a lot of them because they didn't want to get drafted into the Army. Yeah. And uh, the same thing was mostly true with the Marines, although a few people were drafted into the Marines during the Vietnam War, and a very few were drafted into the Navy. But today, uh, in the Army and in every other service, it's all volunteer. You get great people, and they want to be there. And the nice thing about it is, if they don't fit... If they can't accept the discipline, can't take the travel, don't like to work with others or something like this, and they have to leave, they leave. During the days of the draft, if you had offered them that option, you, you, you don't know who would have stayed. You might not have had that much of an army. People are always trying to get out of it. Now they're trying to get in it. So we like it that way. Yeah. But uh, And the respect that the American people give is a big part of why we get those recruits coming in and why people stay with it. But the other piece of it is that the, the armed forces are more isolated from American society than they've ever been. And uh, it's as though people show respect because they're showing respect and gratitude that, you know, brother, I'm happy I'm not where you are. And 
that worries me because I grew up in the era when everybody had an obligation to serve their country, and that's what I believe in. Well, so why do you say it's isolated? I'm, I'm curious, because I think it's more integrated than it's ever been. It's it's out there. We're talking about it more. People are, uh, you know, a little bit more engaged, I think, than they have been, uh, especially and certainly not anti, a very positive way. So why would you say it's isolated? Depends on what part of the country you're from, but you know the military runs off uh, recruits. Mm-hmm. And if you don't recruit, you don't have a military today. Yeah. And so uh, just like any sales organization, you look at your, uh, at your potential uh, market demographics, you do surveys, you find out where uh, respect for the armed forces is highest, you find out where people are interested in it, like, you know, in South Dakota, where you are, every year there's a wonderful uh, air display there. Mm-hmm. And a big uh, air show. It's huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. People come from all around to see that air show. People love it. We do the same thing here in, in Little Rock. We've got an air, air base here in Little Rock. If you're in the central part of the country, there's lots of connection with the armed forces. If you go to the coasts, not the, so where much. The, where the people are, quite frankly. Let's be, let's be oh. real about that. That's where the folks are. They're not in Middle it's Earth. In, <laughs> in the so-called flyover country. Yep. Yep. Lots of people who, for one reason or another, they're patriotic. Uh, maybe it is fun travel, adventure, and get out and see the world. Uh, it's a way to get a skill. If you get married early, it's a way that you can uh, do something that offers a path to your personal advancement. It also takes care of your family. So there's a lot of in- incentives. But for whatever reason, uh, we're not as representative of the country demographically as the armed forces were let's say, in the 1950s and 60s. If you look at, let's say, Princeton graduates, you find in the class of 1954 that more than half the class had some kind of affiliation with the armed forces. Right. And if you look at the class of 2014, you'll find that's not the case. Well, and I, I, I get the part about isolation. I think a lot of people would say, man, I just don't want my son or my daughter to have to join the military. I think you hear that. Or you sense that they're afraid of that, but if they really think about it, you know, it's probably the best place. I mean, think of the skill sets. I mean, the, what what were the skill sets that you learned as a result? Now you you've been a general. I mean, but you spent 38 years in the army. What what? I was lucky because I went to West Point, and yeah. I was lucky to get an appointment. It's a competitive process. West Point and Annapolis and the Air Force Academy are three of the most selective institutions uh, of higher learning in the country. It's, you know, it's a, one out of every 10 or 20 people who apply actually get admitted yeah, to these institutions. It's a very competitive, unless you're, yeah, to very competitive apply and or get nominated by your United States Senate, you know. Uh, even then, it's yeah, competitive. It's, uh, it, it's changed a little over the years. I mean, 60 years ago, if you were nominated, you were going to get admitted. Today, if you're nominated, you don't usually get the nomination until you've already gone through a competitive process. You may not be the most qualified, but you have to be well qualified or you're not going to get that nomination yeah. from the congressman or senator. So uh, it's it's a tough thing to get in, but I had a great education. Engineering, uh, social sciences, but maybe the best part of it is the leadership education. And that's true whether you go to the service academies or not. You see more people from more walks of life in different roles, and you find yourself thrust into positions of responsibility at a young age. And uh, if you're honest with yourself and if you're minimally perceptive about what's going on around you, you're going to learn a lot of lessons. I'm going to ask you a question. I, I didn't pick up this in the research or the stuff, but I'll just ask you bluntly because that's who I am and I do it anyway. I'm straightforward. Do you think that, that intelligence has a part to play in leadership? 
Yes, but there's different kinds of intelligence. And there are people who have made millions and millions of dollars in this country through their particular brand of intelligence that, that they're not very good leaders. It's not important to them, or they simply lack a certain affinity and understanding of other people's perspectives, and therefore they don't deal well in human behavior. Or common but sense But it doesn't sometimes. mean that these people aren't very intelligent. Right. They might be, and they might have done really well economically or in academics. But uh, for most of us, what we're looking for in leadership is we're looking for someone who's intelligent enough to think through a problem. Uh, he's got emotional intelligence, so he understands the people he's working or she's working with and what their needs are and understands the boss and what the boss wants done and can put the two together and build a team and help it to produce something, whether it's a, a manufacturing process or a sales process or in the military, um, organizing an outfit to go uh, run a, an operation somewhere. Yeah. What, what do you, now you're an investment banker, a business leader, commentator, author, teacher. You know, which which of the things that you're doing the most, or what are you really doing now that you're out of the military? Give me give me a perspective on that. Well, I, it's it's been I've really been blessed, Jeff, because I was able to combine lots of different things and still uh, take care of my family and provide for their security. So I'm able to lecture. Sometimes I get paid for it, yeah. not as much as some people have gotten paid. Like Tony sure, Blair, three hundred. So, did you see Tony Blair's thing? Three hundred thousand dollars that he's I know, getting. I know, but I'm not. I'm not in that category. <laughs> but I have a lot of fun. I get to talk to universities and yeah. business groups and stuff. Sometimes I do it for nothing, right? And uh, it's just a, a contribution I can make because I love teaching, and uh, and I'm affiliated with the University of California in Los Angeles. My son and his children live out there, and so that's a good way for me to give back a little. And I sometimes get to lecture on campus yeah. and uh, and to the faculty as well as the students. So I, I really like that. Um, I've written four books, and um, I when I get a hankering and I just can't stand it any longer, I start writing stuff down. It's, do you it's, write on napkins and everything, or, or do you have a notebook? How do you Blackberry. Do yeah. Blackberry. Is that right? Are you are you a Blackberry guy? Yeah, I wrote my third book entirely on a BlackBerry. Is that now, I have to confess, I, I wrote only parts of my fourth book on a BlackBerry because it was a much more uh, substantive book that required footnotes and other things. And as much as I love a BlackBerry, it's still pretty hard to footnote on a BlackBerry. Yeah, oh, a footnote. But, you know, I, I tell people, you know, somebody called me once years ago about BlackBerry and said, what would you tell them? I said, the number one app that BlackBerry has, and that's been their demise. They never built an app platform that anybody paid attention to. But I said the number one app was the, was the keyboard, the typing. In fact, I said, you put somebody up against any iPhone or Android, and I'll guarantee you somebody in a BlackBerry will beat them times 10. And in terms of speed of, of being able to type, it's terrible on an iPhone uh, or an Android. But uh, Blackberries, that's, that's, that's pretty neat. You're, and your books have done very well, too, quite frankly. But beyond the books and that, what's the, what's the biggest part? Is it the investment banking? I went out to become, when I got out of the military, I was 55 years old. And, of course, I'd been the commander of the, of the Europe, U.S. European Command. Mm-hmm. I had about 100 and some odd thousand soldiers and another 150,000 family members over there. Plus, I had the NATO commands. So I had two commands I ran simultaneously, two different headquarters. 
and uh, and we were doing the operations in the Balkans, and so we even did the bombing campaign over Kosovo, and I was deeply involved in all that. And you get out, and you say, well, what am I going to do? Now because what? how does that translate into business? And the truth is that in the business community, we're very specialized. And um, there are headhunters in the business community, these executive search firms. And if you're looking for someone who can be an executive of a petrochemical company, then you want somebody who's worked in petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. And if, there's, uh, if they're doing software development, you want a software developer. And you wouldn't believe this, but there's very little marketability when you come in and say, hey, I was a general and uh, I had a lot of people working for me. <laughs> they don't put that in a sort of necessary career step. So you have to figure out what you're going to do. So I met with a couple of people uh, in executive search and they said, you know, you should think about investment banking because investment banking, you see lots of different things and you get to apply your um, analysis and your experience and then you uh, you work your way up and maybe you'll get a leadership position by becoming an investment banker first and learning business that way. So I interviewed with several firms and I was uh, selected by a group in Little Rock called the Stevens Group, uh, which is a big investment bank. And I worked in their private equity for two and a half, three years. And I really, that's how I learned business. Well, that's I had to learn too. accounting. That, but that's also home, right? I mean, Little Rock's, that's where you grew up. It was wonderful. Yeah. I came back here and... Um, my cousins were here and I could drive past the house I grew up in and drive down the street where my mom and dad used to commute to work every day and look at the bank building where my mom worked, which had been turned into a parking lot, unfortunately. But it was, it was home and I still had probably half the members of my high school class living in town. That's something, which is a great way to reconnect. Do do you, now in the military, we move around a lot. You know, every year, my father and family, we move to a different Air Force base almost every single year. A different school, different house. And I'll talk to you about your houses a little bit later in rapid fire to give you a little hint. But, you know, do you ever regret not having that that rock or that place that was always one place? Or or, maybe that is Little Rock now for you. I always felt like Little Rock was the home. Uh, my parents moved from Little Rock to Hot Springs, which is about 50 miles away, when they retired from uh, the business community, and that was in 1974. So uh, for 20 years, it was Hot Springs rather than Little Rock. But then we came back here, and uh, we fit right in, and we were made to feel extremely welcome by the community. It was a wonderful experience. My wife loved it. It was a great transition for her. Let me, I got to take a quick break and let me do a read in a little bit of a live thing from Liberty Tax. Liberty Tax, one of our new sponsors, and their mission statement is set the standard, improve each day, and have some fun. And I got to tell you, that's important because when I'm thinking about taxes, I'm not thinking about fun. And it's fun for me to turn it over to Liberty Tax, which happens to be the fastest growing retail tax preparation firm ever. They have over 4,000 offices nationwide in Canada, and it's a great seasonal opportunity. Do you do, oh, by the way, let me ask you, General, you do your own taxes or you send them out? I always did my own taxes when I was in the military. I would have bet that. I would have bet that. Do you do that now? I can't now. Yeah, it's it's too complicated, isn't it? You got all this it's, stuff. It's it was too easier, complicated because it was easier when you just got a paycheck, but now you got I work abroad and um, and and I have investments abroad and and and, and different governments take out taxes against you and you've got lawyers over there working for 
foreign companies who handle things. It just it got too hard. Yep, I had the same thing for me too. I used to like to do them a little bit, but then it got very complicated. I'm so glad I got people like Liberty and others. Hey, we were talking about family in a place, and I, I want to go into a personal question uh, with you, and I'm, I've always asked those as well. But your ancestry. If I look back at the bio and looked at you know your background in terms of an ancestry, your mother withheld some information from you for years, and your your father's family was Jewish, and I think your paternal great grandfather immigrated to the United States from Belarus, you know after right. the the, right. the big uh, Russian. Um, I don't know what the, what, the, what the word I would call that, but, you know, the revolutions and everything else that was going on. So, but she withheld that to you. What, what did – I've never, I've never seen that or, or experienced that. What was that like for you, not know that and then to find that out? Well, my father died when I was uh, – just before my fourth birthday. Mm -hmm. And we were living in Chicago, and um, he was a lawyer in Chicago. He was in city government. He was um, very well thought of. His he had uh, five sisters and a brother there and 12 other first cousins. And it was a very large, well-connected Jewish family that had come to this country in the 1890s. Three brothers, two sisters, and um, and another woman. And, um, and they, like so many other immigrant families, they made their way. Uh, they stayed in Chicago. They didn't go out into South Dakota and get farmland. They didn't yeah. know how to do that. Yeah. They went in the dry goods business. And we're Norwegian, we're their... Norwegians. They're Scandinavians of, of some type. Do, do, but that's right. we get mostly out this way. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great. It's a great state. And I love I love the, the, the mid, upper Midwest. But, you know, my grandfather, um, they went in the hardware business. And so they owned hardware and dry goods. And they insisted their son become a lawyer. He went to the Kent College School of Law in Chicago, which is where you would go in those days if you were Jewish because the University of Chicago wasn't open to you. And he did very well there, and he was uh, very well accepted. And he, uh, when he was 40-some-odd uh, years old, uh, I guess his mother told him, she said, Ben, you're over 40. You're the last of my children not married. Just go ahead and get married. Marry anyone. So he'd been dating outside his faith. He'd been dating my mother for several years. And this was in the early days and of mixed marriages. Yeah, that, so that, was, that's uh, a different time. I mean, she was English ancestry and was a Methodist. as I as English I, and Dutch, and she was a Methodist. And, mm -hmm. and she lived in Chicago, and she worked in a bank. And, and, but she lived in one of the apartment uh, hotels that my grandparents owned. That's how my father met her. So um, anyway, they, they got married. And as my mother said, uh, seven years later, she thought she had a tumor, but it was me. Mm. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> that's, that's something else. What, did, did you ever have a conversation with your mother? I'm sure you had to about, why, hey, mom, why didn't you tell me that? Well, after my father died, she came back to Arkansas and she moved in with her mother and father in Little Rock. And, and um of course, she was over 40 years old. Uh, she had to get a job. In those days, uh, not that many women worked oh, yeah. outside the home. And exactly. I mean, if you were over 40, it was considered that your life had sort of ended. Yeah. So it was, I'm sure it was extremely difficult for my mother. And when she moved down here, 
and there I was, and I missed my father terribly. I remember crying a lot and asking where he was and being sad all the time. And I think she just tried to protect me yeah. when when she came down here. And she knew from her experience in Chicago that there was a certain amount of prejudice uh, in those days. There were, as she told me, there were restaurants they couldn't go to, hotels they couldn't uh, 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 visit. There were people they couldn't associate with because of his Religious well, let's also think back even prior to the days of, you know, in terms of liberation that we had with civil rights. But you think back at Little Rock at the time back then, or even, you know, I, my own home state of South Dakota. I mean, there's not a lot of Jews in, in South Dakota, quite frankly. I mean, even today, I think we only This have- was the 1930s and 1940s, and so my mother's experience. And so when she came back here, she just thought, you know, the best thing, I remember she took me to a church. We'd been going to the Methodist Church in Chicago when I was a little kid, and I remember the stained glass windows, and she took me around and let me see several churches in Little Rock, and I picked out one that had the same kind of stained glass windows. It happened to be the Emmanuel Baptist Church, and uh, so I was like four and a half years old, and I went to the Baptist Church, and my mother said, that's fine. You're going to be a Baptist. There you go. That's good. Good for you. So let me, what's better? Is it better to be in business or in the military? Oh, I've loved them both. I mean, you know, I think that you have to, there's a saying they always give the military wives, always say, you know, you're like a flower, bloom where you're planted. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you're in the military, you have to do the best you can at it. It has its strengths, it has its advantages, it has its disadvantages. And when you get out, you do the best you can. to, to. I still have dreams about the military. I mean, it will always be in my heart. And, uh, and about once a month, I'll wake up in a cold sweat thinking I was out of uniform and missed a formation or something. Oh, man, that's something. Oh, it stays you, with you for a long time. Say, when you say... Love what I'm doing today, and I loved being in the armed forces. Yeah, is there something that you would go back and change? Well, yeah, I would. Mm-hmm. I think that for me and going through West Point, uh, we learned a, a standard of behavior, and then we went into the Army, and I don't think we fully understood the human dimension um, that that we've tried to inculcate in our leadership today in the volunteer Army. I think in the Army of the 1950s and the early 60s, when I first was exposed to it and picked up my first lessons, it was an Army of a lot of, um, it was a lot of, let's say, compulsion a lot of order, a lot of discipline, and maybe not enough of individuality and trying to bring out the best in everyone. And we recognized that when we recreated the Volunteer Army, and we recognized that uh, we had to produce a closer relationship between the, between the ranks, between the top and the bottom. That there was always a, a mythology in the Navy that there was a, in the officer's country, and the officers were like a breed apart and so forth. And the Army had some of that. Um, the women uh, officers' uh, wives uh, wore white gloves and hats to social functions and things like that. that um, and the, the sergeants' wives, they didn't do that. But over the last, especially the last 25 years, and especially since we entered full-time combat in uh, the Middle East with our Army, right. we've become so much closer. And we built so much more strength from that cohesion. I think if I could change something, I'd go back to the Army of the early 60s and say, you got to love those soldiers more. you got to 
pay more attention. You've got to bring out their individual strengths and, and build on that more, their individuality, and not be so worried about trying to mold a unit as you are trying to bring out the best of the people who are in the unit. Don't you think that applies to business, too? It's like, t you know, taking your greatest asset and getting the most out of it. And, you know, a lot of folks try to, try to get people to adapt to, you know, the corporate culture, but the corporate culture is the people that are around there. I mean, they all make up that corporate culture. Do you I think you're exactly right. And, you know, the thing about it is sometimes there's a lot more tolerance in the military than there is in, in the corporate culture. I was um, having a long discussion with the publisher of the Louisville Courier-Journal about 20 years ago. And um, he was a very distinguished gentleman who had a lot of experience in business and life. And uh, we were talking about our respective authorities. He was the owner and publisher of a newspaper, and I was a commander of a, the 1st Cavalry Division. And um, I said, I don't think it's possible to have more authority than you have in the armed forces because you can create situations and order people to take actions that will put their lives at risk that maybe actually cause them to die. And that's a really heavy responsibility. So you always have to be conscious of that responsibility. He said, well, let me tell you something. In business, I can fire people and I can ruin the rest of their professional life. And you can't do that hmm. in the armed forces. And I began to realize he was right. That in the armed forces, you could be fired, you could be put in trouble, you'd be gotten in trouble for discipline or something. But unless you were court-martialed, that paycheck was going to be there. You might not get promoted, but you are going to have a paycheck for a while. And in business, it's not that way. So there are strong, um, there there are strong corporate cultures, and when people are in those cultures, uh, they learn them and they follow those cultures. Uh -huh. What do you think is better in the military? Being in both sides now, what do you think is better in the military? than in business, or maybe even vice versa, what's better in business than the military, or maybe we should add, add, ask you both. What, what's, what steps out you go, man, if we'd have done this in the military, or man, if I could bring this from the military over to here, that you would say, you've had to have a couple of aha moments like that. Well, I think in business, generally, it's easier to hold people accountable because there are usually more defined metrics of performance and as a result people wake up at 4 a.m. and they worry am I going to make my sales quota mm -hmm. am I going to get this contract done how do I keep my profit and loss statement uh, on course and to meet my boss's objectives that he and I agreed on and those are really important metrics that profit and loss motivator in business is a big thing for people who are it's, it's, uh, at that level. Well, it's do or die. It's do or die. I mean, you, you know, if you haven't, Fran Tarkenton once gave me the greatest quote I've ever heard, and this was back in, I think, about 1986. I was at a seminar that he was doing at a national uh, association of quick printers, and he, he was up there speaking. He says, man, you, you haven't lived, you know, unless you've been in business and wondering whether the next day you're going to make payroll or not. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah that's no, like, exactly. Yeah. In the military, it's a little bit different because there's a lot of different things that are impacted. Usually in the military, you can't choose your own team. You cannot fire your subordinates. They're assigned to you. So you got to build them. you got to develop the skills in your organization and the mindset. And <clears throat> on the other hand, usually it's a binary outcome. If you're going to war, 
you have an enemy. Mm-hmm. And everybody on your side wants you to succeed. Now, as you get higher, there's a little politics involved, but generally that's the way it works. Um, and I think in business, it's much more complicated. You know, I, I look at business today and I think about how difficult it is for some businesses to make it. When you're in business, you're like a chip floating on the surface of the, of the ocean. When the wave goes up, the chip rises higher. And the people on that chip are paddling like Dickens. They think, my God, look at my paddling. I've made, you know, 20% growth over the last year. Right. But that growth may be premised on factors that you have no control over. Well, or you get a, like you get a push from a small environment, uh, the, wind, the interest the rate, yeah. or in demand, a competitor that goes out of business. And yeah, then if it's the reverse and suddenly it drops, you read about all these people who have terrible emotional problems because they feel like failures, when in reality, they're doing nothing different in their business. They're still coming to work, they're still trying to work sales, but they can't make the sales because their customers don't have the money or the need for the product. And they feel like failures and their organizations crumble. And and um, in reality, um, they're all, um, they're, they're, they're just floating on the surface of the ocean. So what you see at the, top of businesses is maybe you can foresee these with the right strategy and you can try to save for a rainy day or broaden or diversify. But for most of the people near the top, they don't have those options. You know, I like, let me jump in. I like what you're saying here because it's not, it, it, with the military, it, your decisions, they're, it's very black or white. Someone can die. As opposed to business, we think someone's going to die. And, and, and I don't mean to trivialize it because uh, you've made some real hard decisions in your life, and I respect that. But in business, we think of it like that. We think we have enemies. We think those things. But, but as you said, it's much more complicated. No one's really going to die. It's gonna, you're going to live another day, and you're going to be able to go on. It's just, it's just always changing and adapting, and I think that's a very important thing to point out. Well, you know, in the military, when you're when you're in the armed forces, Jeff, you're working for a single employer. Mm-hmm. If you don't like your boss in the United States Army, there's no other army to go to. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't like your boss at General Electric, you, can quit. you might be able to go get a job at Siemens or something right. if you have the right technical skills and so forth. So there's 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 so many more variables at play in the civilian economy in the business community than there are in the military. The military is really an up or out system, and it's um, one strike and you're out. Whereas uh, it may be ruthless and heartless in the business community, but people adapt and weave their way through it and go from company to company and experience to experience, and the the vast majority of them uh, make it. They may not make it in their 20s, maybe they're in their 30s. They may not make it in their 30s, they can make it in their 40s or even in their 50s. My father ended up, my stepfather ended up uh, losing his position in banking. Um, He tried small business. The small business didn't work out for him. It was weather-dependent business. And at the critical holiday weekends when he needed to make sales, it rained. And there you have it. So he went back into... Uh, his academics. He had a master's degree in banking. He took the state civil service exam and rose to be the number two guy in the, uh, or number three guy in the state department of revenue in Arkansas. Just before he retired, he did that in his 60s and early 70s. 
Let me let me uh, jump in here and talk about something that, that's related to the Army, uh, General Clark. Napoleon once said, an army marches on its stomach, but Napoleon never had Dunkin' coffee, or he might have reworked that quote. Because I say America runs on Dunkin', they say America runs on Dunkin', I'm talking about Dunkin'. And I know the army runs better when the troops can enjoy fresh hot coffee, and my favorite's Dunkin's coffees. It's, it's espresso, the double espresso, or I should say a triple or a quad. I love that. And do you drink coffee at all? Yeah, but I always love the donuts, to be honest with you. <laughs> Everybody says that. Everybody I talk to always, they always talk about the coffee, which is, about, by the way, about 60-some percent of their sales or 70 percent of their sales. But, but we always go to the, the, the donuts. I love that. What's your favorite donut? Ample, Jeff. And um, I, I was, when I was a major, I was working in, in NATO staff for, for General Alexander Haig, who was a, then the Supreme Allied Commander. And we traveled on his airplane back and forth to Washington frequently. And whenever I go back to Washington, I could hardly wait to escape the Pentagon that night and run by a Dunkin' Donuts shop and buy glazed donuts. Couldn't get them overseas in oh, those days. That's awesome. That's great. I just craved them. That's good. Well, I'll send you over a dozen or two. Hey, you had a quote, and I, I pulled this up because I really wanted to talk about it. You said... When I learned in the military, what I learned in the military is that gossip starts early and it stays forever. Isn't that, isn't that the, the, the fact? Isn't that the truth? Doesn't it just kill moods and kill things? Some of the worst thing in the world has happened is what people think they heard or the gossip and the stuff that's not really, it's all stories. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably did say that. It, it's, it's called reputation mm-hmm. and... It's everywhere in life. People have reputations, and that's what you tell kids today when they're on on their uh, social media and their Facebook page and twitting and stuff like this. Be careful what you say mm-hmm. because that's that defines how people feel about you, and you may have to live with that for a long time. So I think it's just a fact of life. You realize that you get a reputation. So you ran for president back in 2003. You're going to run again? I'm not. Why not? You, we, you know, hey, look, I'll speak for the Democrats. I think they need a good candidate. Why wouldn't you do that again? You just don't want a good to candidate, that. huh? If they've got a great candidate, <laughs> there you go. Well, I think we have more. The Republicans right now, they have how many? Of you they've got 12 candidates now. Going to be up to almost as many as 20 before this is over. Well, that's what I hear. I was one of 10. And uh, let me tell you, when you were on the stage for the debate and you were standing there behind that podium and the two or three people who were asking questions were sort of swiveling around and you were you're like, just give me a chance. Just let me get in there. Just let me say something. And, you know, it was extremely difficult to have the debate with 10. I can imagine how difficult it's going to be. They're going to have an A team and a B team. What what was that? But, Jeff, I do want to say this. I, I do think that. You know, politics is really, really important, and I think that our listeners, you know, have to really look at the candidates. They have to understand what the parties stand for, because when you elect a candidate, you're also electing a bunch of people who come with them, and uh, you have to look at what that what that party's done in the past and what it's going to do in the future. Parties have reputations just like people do, and sometimes those reputations are undeserved. You know, uh, if you look at the way media works in politics, and especially presidential politics, uh, the candidates are playing for the most powerful office in human history. Yep. 
and uh, so everything's fair. So uh, there's lots of truth-telling, some not-so-truthful-telling, and some big, fat whoppers out there. And the more you can get a candidate defending themselves, the quicker they lose. So sometimes the people in the in, in the public, they see what's happening in the press, but but they don't understand. Let's call it the meta game. What people in the race understand is they call it the horse race. The press likes a fight. So what the press wouldn't like to have is they wouldn't like to say Democrats and Republicans today say, okay, well that's it. It's going to be Hillary and Jeb, and uh, let's just wait. Uh, we'll start this after Labor Day in 2016. No, no, that wouldn't work because there's a whole industry out there with uh, primaries and voting and workers and media people and especially television that gets paid for these advertisements. All that would disappear. Mm -hmm. So they like to promote this clash. And it's up to the voters in America to see through it, to understand what's going on and pick the right people with the right support to take the country forward. But, ten- but tension's a good thing. I like tension, because I think you get a better outcome from healthy debate and the tension. And by the way, I think you're, you you, you kind of said the two candidates, and I actually think those are the two that we're going to have, is Harry and Jeb, which I think is going to be an interesting race. you got the wife of a former president and the son of a former president and a brother of a former president. I don't think we've never had anything like that before. This this should be kind of interesting to see. I don't. The last time we had that was with Adams as a son, but I don't know if there, I don't know. I can't remember who he ran against at the time. But it, I think it's going to be. It'll be an interesting race, and I think you'll have good, healthy debate. It'll be interesting and and fun, quite frankly. Do you think we're in a time? You actually, you said this. I'm going to read what you said, and then kind of. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I, you said I think we're at a time in American history that's probably an, an ag- uh, well, it's probably maybe Rome before the first emperor, emperors when the republic started to fall. Do you think we're in a downward slide or an upward slide? I think it's very much up to what happens in the next few years. We know we've got a huge challenge economically and geostrategically, if I can use that word, with China. Mm -hmm. China is four times the United States size in population. Um, It's growing very rapidly economically. Uh, It's got a strong leadership cadre in the Communist Party in China. They use the market system to um, attract technology, to regulate some investments, to blend in with the rest of the world, but but it's not really a free market economy. It's really a command-directed economy that does what the Communist Party determines needs to be done through its five-year planning process, and um, they claim they're going to have a larger gross domestic product than the United States in the next three or four years. Already, if you look at purchasing power and you consider, okay, for so many dollars, do you get more in China or the United States? They're probably ahead of us in what's called purchasing power parity. Um, so there's there's a big challenge there, and how we respond to that is everything. If you look at the past record of democracies, what happens is they tend to face external challenges, and they become more and more centralized and autocratic. And that's what happened to Rome. The question is, can Americans maintain a strong economy and can they exercise good judgment through the ballot box and are they secure enough that they're not going to sacrifice the 
exigencies of democracy for the security of an autocratic ruler. And um, that's, that's the challenge for 21st century America. We have to somehow make the economy grow, build a national strategy, deal with supersized competitors like China, and maintain our ability to argue amongst ourselves, throw up 20 candidates for president if we feel like it, and not have a loss of power and prestige that damages, in the, damages us in the world. Yeah. That's a tall order for democracy. Well, like, and we like- don't have to go the way of Rome. Mm-hmm. We uh, can change it. I well, hope we and don't, don't you think? And we are changing in some cases. I mean, there's some areas that we're really leading. I mean, one of the areas that you're you're chairman of a company that's uh, kind of got its roots out of South Dakota. That's kind of how I got to you, was through some friends of mine and my assistant who used to work for that company. But we're talking about growth energy, and the things you're doing there. That that's a that's a bright spot for the U.S. Well, growth energy is a advocacy company for. For, for biofuels and particularly for, for ethanol. And um, that's been one of the greatest things I've done since I've been out of the military is to be associated with these great farmers across America's Midwest and, and the people who had the courage to invest in bio refineries. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, in South Dakota, we produce about 10% of the country's ethanol. Well, you know, I know that. that started. I, I started off a few years ago uh, getting off the ground, the American Coalition for Ethanol. And, of course, you know the folks from Poet, one of the, the biggest producers, and they're based here in South Dakota. What, what made you kind of lean that way? Well, because at heart, I, I'm, I'm a, a national security hawk. I'm a patriot, and I've never felt good about America's dependence on energy imported from abroad. I wrote the first papers on it for the Pentagon back in 1973, when we had the first oil crisis. And you could predict then that this dependence on energy sources from abroad was going to be the tail that wagged the dog of American foreign policy. It was going to be a problem for us. It was going to... We then it, it would be very likely that we might put troops into the Middle East. I mean, that was 1973. I, I, you know, that's 42 years ago. And what's it cost us to be dependent on the Middle East for energy? And it hasn't ended yet. Yeah, it's just, so uh, it's a, it's biofuels a, offer a way to reduce that dependence. And um, it's a national security issue. Plus, it keeps that money in the United States. Keep that money here. Why do we want it to go abroad? I, could, I we, agree we with want you. To build I, I, amen, brother. I'm, I'm with you. Education and technology at home, yeah. and the ability to take um, uh, a a starch and convert it into a sugar and an alcohol, and make it into a fuel, and then to take all the other products out of it, the distiller's grain and the corn oil and various other things that are People are looking at taking out of these uh, out of these products now. It's remarkable where this could lead us, and it's all green. And we have to be greener in the future. I'm looking out my window in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the Arkansas River rushing at seven times normal pace as a result of an unprecedented series of rainfalls in Oklahoma and Texas and western Arkansas. Uh, that's related to more energy in the atmosphere, and that is a function of the increased buildup of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere caused by burning coal and oil. 
right. and we're only at the leading edge of seeing the actual impacts now. I got to move on to the rapid fire. Are you ready? You, you locked in? You've handled a lot of tough stuff, but this is going to be real tough. First question. Okay, go ahead. What is your column number? Did I say that right? Column after general? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, do you remember? Oh, that? But they don't have it anymore. Well, what was it back then? I've... You remember? No. Uh, my team asked me, when I said, this is a number assigned to each West Point graduate. Yeah, assistant. there was a number assigned to you in graduation. It's in my, if I get out the record of the graduates, I could probably find F it. Figure but it out. nobody remembers it. Everybody goes by Social Security number now. Yeah, they do. That's the number. Hey, uh, let me ask you this question. Did you ever have to spin Sedgwick's spurs? Did I have to do? Did you have to spin Sedgwick's spurs? You know what yes. I Yes. Mean? You, you did. I did didn't have to, but I did it one night. I was a senior, and uh, we were um, out looking for a, a missing cadet, and it was after taps. And um, as we went by Sedgwick's monument, there was a cadet in January with snow on the ground in his summer dress uniform because he was going to have to take exams over again to avoid being kicked out. And uh, it was always a tradition as a sign of good luck you go spin the spurs on this on the statue. And there he was sort of hiding from us by the statue. <laughs> so he spun the spurs. We didn't get him in too much trouble. And then we spun the spurs just for the heck just, of it. Just for, just for luck, which is a great way. Yeah. This, this is the way you, it gave you good luck so that you could pass your exams. That was a, a kind of a cool tradition. All right, next question. West Point or Oxford? Oh, they were totally, they were totally complimentary. West Point prescribed curriculum, heavy discipline. I got to go to classes. Oxford, um, wide open. Go to whatever class you want. Got to write a bunch of papers. Meet the most amazing people in the world. Take time off and travel. Come on, you got to pick one. Which would it be? Oh, I pick West Point. West Point. There you go. So I I, re I read that you lived in thirty eight different houses and probably more by now. What, what location is your favorite? Panama. Panama. We had a house in Quarry Heights that had big trees on which monkeys and iguanas lived and looked at us. And we would put out um, trays of old fruit, and they would come down bamboo poles and eat on our porch. That's cool. Well, hey, what was who was your favorite president? Eisenhower. Eisenhower. And then what, what general, then? I should ask you this one. What general inspired you the most? Well, if you're looking at going back through history, I mean, I, I've always been really inspired by Ulysses Grant. Yeah. He had an incredible, he was the first general who could command a group of armies who wasn't on the battlefield. He but, really you know, if it. you just look at brave leaders and people who were incredible fighters, I mean, look at George Armstrong Custer, who at 23 leading the Michigan Cavalry two or three years out of West Point, he helped win the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. He led 400 Michigan cavalrymen against a column of 10,000 of Jeb Stewart's finest raiders and stopped the column cold on the third day of the battle, and that was the end of it. My great-great-great-grandfather was in Jeb Stewart's cavalry. On the, uh, he was a sergeant in the Virginia Cavalry and rode with Jeb Stewart in that battle. In fact, I had another relative on the other side who was lieutenant um, who died on the uh, in that battle on uh, Little Round Top. So it's, it's amazing the connection. My goodness. Yeah. How about, uh, what's your favorite Army food? Favorite Army food is um, 
Well, I like Chili Mac. <laughs> That's, and do you, do you mix it with anything, or you just like to eat it just, just like Listen, that? Listen, when you come in and it's cold at night, yeah. and you're chilled to the bone, and you've been out all day long, and they give you a, a, a tray with two big scoops of Chili Mac on it, don't need anything else. Did you put? You ever put anything on it, like Tabasco or anything like that? No, I always had good cooks. The chili pack was good. That was good enough. All right, let yeah. me let me give you let me give you a shameless plug. You've been great to spend you know over forty minutes here with me. I want to give you a chance to plug something. What would you like to plug? Two things. One is the uh, the bank we're building called Invera. So you can see our bank online, and uh, we're, we do uh, we raise capital and we support projects, and we're trying to make a difference in the world, small as we are. We're working in the United States and abroad, and I've got a great team of people there. And secondly, I'd like people to read my book, Don't Wait for the Next War, because America needs a strategy. Uh, we can't survive in the 21st century without a national strategy that helps us grow this economy. And that has to emerge from the people of the United States who demand it of their leaders. Well, I tell you, I appreciate it. And thanks for mentioning both of those items. And I'll make sure we do a little plug for you as well as we continue on. It's been a pleasure. And I, I'm going to ask you back because this has been a lot of fun. And I want to do this some more. So I appreciate it. That would be great, Jeff. Love hey, to come back. General, thanks so much. We'll let you go. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Okay, after every single interview, I try to add a little bit of what I learned because I just have a great time talking to all of these folks. You learn so much, and I picked up three things today. First of all, Intelligence is not necessarily the precursor for leadership. It helps, as the general said, but you got to have some practical experience and you got to be able to know how to apply it. So just being smart isn't enough to be a leader. You got to have some chutzpah. You got to have some some experience. You got to have I've been there, done that, and understand it. I've been in your shoes kind of attitude in order to be a great leader. And by the way, I also think it helps to listen very good. The second one I thought was really cool. He used the quote there. He said. You bloom where you're planted. So no matter what you're doing or where you're at, you know, don't not stay there, but do the best job you can in what you're doing. And I think that's great because that shows the real you. And I think that was a great way to be able to phrase that and saying, hey, get out there and do the job you're supposed to be doing where you're at and do it right and do it the best you possibly can. And then the third thing I loved, he said, you're, we're floating on, a, uh, on, the, on the surface of the ocean. We're floating on the surface of the ocean. And, and what he meant by that was on the business side, you're out there and you move in you, ups and downs and overs and turnovers and, and you sink and you rise. And that's what business is about. And you learn from your experiences. You learn from your failures. You learn from your successes. That's continual change. I have said always in my book, change, adapt, or die is what I talk about. So in this case, I think it applies to business. And it was great talking to General Clark right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on Play.it.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.